This is Harold Schechter, and you're listening to the Mike Sappho Podcast. This is Joe Coleman, and you're listening to the Mike Sappho Podcast. All right, ready to roll? Yep. Yeah. All right, so Joe, every show, I always end it by saying, asking the guest, who's the coolest person in your phone that you can text? That's how I end every show. So the three or four times that Harold came on, he tells me the coolest guy in my phone is this guy named Joe Coleman. <laughs> I think Harold's the coolest dude. So if he thinks someone's cool, I'm like, I got to get you on. So I did some research on you the first time because I knew who you are. I'm like, holy shit, this, is, this guy's really cool. I, yeah. I see the celebrities you hang out with and all that. I was supposed to come to the cemetery show, but I actually oh, yeah. went on vacation. And then a couple of months ago, I'm laying down watching Anthony Bourdain, the New York one. It's the last episode, so I know the whole world is watching it. And son of a bitch, I see artist Joe Coleman. And here's how selfish I am. I'm like, this guy's going to go Hollywood. He's not going to come on my show. So <laughs> I, I was so selfish that you were coming on that show. It bothered me. Yeah, well, it was uh, – Anthony was an amazing guy, you know, and uh, – I met him when he was uh, wanting to buy one of my paintings, uh, but we became we became really good friends, you know. And um, you know, it was a total shock though when he died. You know, I I didn't see it coming. I mean, he would talk a little bit about suicide. I mean, throughout his entire life, but I, to my knowledge, I don't think he ever attempted it before. I mean, it only takes one time. I just didn't didn't see it coming, and I always felt that like if there was somebody there. You know, just to talk him down, you know, to get through that one night, it would have been fine. I think it was just a reckless moment because he, you know, he had made plans for that, that week. You know, what, uh, I think he had a haircut appointment and, like, he had all these things set up. And you don't do that if you're expecting to take your life. You like, know? such a moment of weakness and then the opportunity was there. That's, it, that's horrible. That's why so many, they always say so many police officers kill themselves. Not because it's a lifelong depression, it's because... That one moment they're so exactly. down, and then they have the accessibility to a firearm within a second, so it's that split second. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How'd that episode come about? Uh, well, Tony had been wanting to, to do that episode, you know, and, um, you know, it was, I mean, I'm honored because, uh, you know, it's like his heroes from the Lower East Side, you know, of the 70s and 80s. And, uh, you know, I, we were already, you know, involved in it, when, and he was still alive, and he was supposed to do, like, the narration you know, for it, you know, so it was kind of eerie the way the episode actually turned out. But I thought Lydia Lunch was, who's a real dear friend of mine too, was, was great for doing um, like her intro, you know, of the Lower East Side, you know, it's like her poetry and uh, it was cool. I mean, I, I really admire the way the, uh, like the crew rose, you know, to the challenge of doing, you know, this final episode of Parts Unknown that really was kind of a Tony's love letter to his, to his home, you know, and uh, it was really, it was moving, you know, and, and there was a lot, you know, a lot at stake, <laughs> you know. It ends so simply with him just eating a hard-boiled egg. Yeah. And he, I hate when people say, oh, this so-and-so inspired me, but he inspired me to travel. Harold knows this. I've been to like 70 countries, and he's a big reason why because it wasn't like, hey, let's shoot to Paris, take a picture in front of the Eiffel Tower, and come home. It's like, hey, let's go to these little mom-and-pop stores. You don't have to go see 40 sightseeing things. You can go see one of them and talk to the people. And he, made, he, like, he humbles you, and it ended with him eating like just a hot-boiled egg. It was just – it was so emotional. Yeah. It wasn't it – was, it, it was so deep, the ending of it. Yeah, the, yeah John Lurie was the one that got him to do that. But it, it was – yeah, because it said, it said a lot, too, about the – about the whole show, you know, which is about food and about travel and about, 
you, you know, in human interaction, you know, and the wonderful people that, you know, that, that Tony met. And, like, he would have friends of, of every, every walk of life, you know, and every different possibility. You know, he, he was, you know, and he was so loved by everyone. And I love that you took him to John's on 12th Street. Yeah. I lived on East 10th Street for five years. That's one of my favorite ah, places to go to. Me too, yeah. And that, they didn't show it in, in the episode, but I was a little bummed that they didn't show the, uh, the candle that um, was, has been burning ever since Prohibition died. Yeah. Wait, wait, in John's? Yeah, in John's. I didn't you know, know that. that. gigantic candle. I, I know the yeah, candle. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know, oh, I didn't know it had yeah. any significance. Yeah. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. Now, how do you and Harold know each other? Uh, I think um, the way we got to meet was uh, when I was doing a painting of Albert Fish. And, um, you know, one of my uh, reference references in... Uh, in making that painting was Harold's novel, you know, about the case. And then I think that painting was in an exhibition in Los Angeles. Yeah. And uh, a friend of Harold's came up to me, you know, and introduced himself and, you know, said that Harold was also a fan of my work. <laughs> and so, and I, I told him, well, please, um, tell Harold to reach out to me because I'd love to get together with him. So, Harold, you were familiar with Joe's work? Uh, yeah, I was. I mean, I wasn't familiar with uh, the Albert Fish painting. <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, a friend of mine in L.A. had gone to this show um, and uh, let me know also that, you know, Joe had this painting and that he had consulted my book uh, on fish. So, yeah, I called up Joe. Um, he invited me over to his auditorium. Which we will get to later. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking about this the other day because I still remember how incredibly disturbed I was the first time <laughs> I walked into. And for you to be disturbed by oh, yeah. somebody, you yeah. collect poison bottles. Oh, well, that's like very minor. <laughs> if you see the auditorium. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, I was, uh, you know, it's like, well, what it's supposed to be. It's like going into a 19th century dime museum. Uh, you know, it has its own, you know, this incredible atmosphere. Um so at that time, I was working on a book, uh, The A to Z Encyclopedia of mm -hmm. Serial Kills, and I wanted to do a section on art, and I wanted to, you know, focus on Joe. So anyway, that became uh, the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Do you guys try to out-morbid each other with your stuff? Um, no, not, not yeah, really. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't really say that. No. Um, Are you guys looking for a third best friend in this <laughs> crew? <laughs> I can be the perfect third best friend to yeah. hang out with you guys. Totally. Yeah. Now, how is your best friend? Well, you have, well, tell us what's going on in your life. Nothing, you have new books coming out. Anything else going on in your life? Uh, well, I became <laughs> a grandfather. I mean, the two big things are uh, my grandson and my PlayStation 4. Um, and now that Not I'm necessarily in that order. No, no, <laughs> yeah. I know that. Um, yeah, you know, I retired uh, this fall from my um, academic job after 42 years of teaching. Uh, so I'm now a professor emeritus, which I feel gives me a certain amount of gravitas mm -hmm. that I've never had before. Um, so, yeah, so now my life is I write in the mornings. Uh, I'm actually working on a book. I'm researching a book about uh, the most, uh, the, the deadliest act of domestic terrorism before Timothy McVeigh, which was something called the Bath School Disaster. A guy blew up uh, 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 an elementary school in a small town called Bath, Michigan in 1927 killed like 44 children, a bunch of teachers. Nobody remembers it, mm -hmm. partly because it happened like literally the day before Charles Lindbergh made his, really? landed in Paris. 
you know, so it totally knocked it off the front pages. Um, so, yeah, I do some work in the morning. Uh, I tell people I'm a human dynamo between 8.30 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. <laughs> um, and then after that, uh, yeah, just play Red Dead Redemption. And <laughs> you got new books out. Yeah. The Bloodlands Collection. Bloodlands Collection. On Amazon. It's six well, it's short story books. Um, there's six, yes, short uh, nonfiction books. The Pied um, Piper. Pied Piper, yes. Rampage, I read. Okay. Panic, the Pirate, Little, uh, Little Slaughterhouse on the Prairie, which I read, uh-huh. and Brick Slayer. Yes. But the books are different. Explain why they're different with these e-books, because I think it's fascinating. Uh, well, I mean, the, the, uh, Amazon started um, uh, something called Amazon Original Stories, uh, and they're meant to be <coughs> excuse me, uh, original works that are short enough to be read in one sitting, uh, 90 <coughs> minutes to two hours. Uh, so they asked me to do this collection. Um, so each one, you know, it's kind of like a mini true crime book. So there are six different ones that cover a hundred years of American criminal history. Uh, and they're only available on Kindle and they're done with what they call Kindle in motion. So they have these illustrations, which have some animation on them. Uh, my other book, Hell's Princess, which is a f- full length, uh, true crime book is also available on Kindle in motion. That's so. right. I read Hell's yeah, and I turned the page, and all of a sudden the page is moving. Yeah, yeah. I was yeah. tripping out. I'm like, oh, I yeah. had two beers. How how yeah. am I just bugged out? Yeah, yeah. That's no, very cool. Uh, that one's about Belle Gunnis, this uh, lady bluebeard of Laporte, Indiana. <clears throat> so, yeah, that's what I've been doing. Joe, any of the Harold's books ever inspire you in the paintings at all? I think uh, you used yeah, the Ed Gein yeah, one. Yeah, Ed Gein and Albert Fish were the two ones that um, – that were important source material when I was making the paintings of both of them. Your paintings, so now before you came on, Harold tells me about you. I do some research. Then I see you on Bourdain. Like I said, thought you were going to go Hollywood. So I went to your website, looked up your paintings, blown away, and I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass. They're the most detailed pictures I've ever seen in my entire life. Well, you have to see them in person to actually Let's go. You know, witness I'll, I'll end the show right now. I'll wrap it up. We'll go there. Yeah, well, you're... <laughs> Well, it's, it's nice to meet you, <laughs> and and I, I you know, I, I would be happy to have you over sometime. Um, but yeah, it's important to see the paintings in, in person because, uh, you know, I use uh, magnifying lenses. You know, they're actually like jeweler's lenses. You know, that you see them, you know, with the goggles <laughs> and the various magnification you could put on it. And then I, I'm working there with a single hairbrush for like eight hours a day, you know, because I, you know, I invest like a certain kind of like Catholic work ethic thing where I have to do eight hours. Like I owe myself, like oh. if I, if it's a, if I don't do enough work one day, I have to make it up another day, but it's, but it's five days that I, I'm forcing myself to, to A five-day work week. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I impose that and I think you know, that kind of discipline is required for th- this kind of work. You have to have an imposed discipline. And the, the odd thing that people probably don't realize when you're looking at the painting is that it's done without like a, pre, you know, a, a pre-drawing. So the composition is appearing as I'm painting. You know, like I work on, you know, like a square inch at a time and then I just add more and more and as the painting unravels it reveals its story to me and like say like when I'm if I'm doing like uh, research you know and I might like I don't I don't read you know I try to um, you know to experience it 
like reading Harold's book, say, as I'm painting, so that when something appears, you know, in my head, you know, that I feel that, you know, needs to be in the painting, it's, you know, it happens, you know, spontaneously, and it's not preconceived before I do the painting. So you're not just going to do a sketch, let's just use the Albert Fish example, okay, Albert Fish is going to be the centerpiece, so you're not just, like, you know, doing a doodle of Albert Fish on a, like, a scrap paper, and then going to the board and filling it back no. in, wow. No, no, it's just, no, because for me, the, you know, the, the adventure, you know, the, the learning and the, the journey would be in the sketch. There would, it would be lifeless to then just take a sketch that already took the journey and then, you know, make it into a painting. So I learned, you know, the painting tells me what, what it wants. I don't tell it. So you'll be, you know, before we get into it, because we're talking about, like, using a magnifying glass, describe your painting itself, like a random painting, how detailed and everything about it, how colorful it is. Well, they, they, they're various sizes. Some are, some are really tiny. You know, some are miniatures, mm -hmm. and then some are life-size, some are huge. And, uh, and there's various sizes in between. Um, you know, the paintings can take up, uh, up to like four or more years to just do oh one my. single painting. Are you always then, working on one at the same time? Yeah. I have wow. to work on one at a time uh, because the concentration, you know, is so intense that I can't be distracted from the subject that I commit to. You know, you have to be totally committed to that subject. It's fascinating. What gives you your inspiration to do it? Because I find artists and writers to be just on another level of like intelligence and how creative they are. What gives you that motivation or what inspires you? I'm going to do a painting or something on this. Because you're going to, you might take a year out of your life now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, the, the inspiration comes, you know, f uh, from just listening, you know, to, to an inner voice, you know, that tells me what, what to do. And then... You know, sometimes then it's convincing uh, about the, you know, I was, I've been wanting to do, you know, an indigenous person's, like, life story, but I, w I wasn't, I didn't want to do, like, Cochise, you know, or Geronimo, you know, a heroic figure that, that seems too easy and, and, okay. and, and cheap. So I came across this story, uh, Swift Runner, it's... Uh, it's this really tragic tale of um, this Cree. He was from the Cree tribe, and uh, you know he was as a as a young man he was you know well respected hunter of the buffalo, and everyone in his tribe looked up to him. And you know he his family loved him. He had a, he had nine people that he took care of in his family. You know his wife, his mother, um, his brother and uh, and six children and like a, around the time it's, it was you know in the mid 1800s and uh, at that time when the white uh, explorers came uh, they brought with it with them guns which at first Swift Runner thought was a great gift and it did help him with the hunting in the beginning but the but these guys also brought with them mass slaughter. They would, they would be hunting buffaloes with cannon, you know, and, and William Tecumseh Sherman, you know, when he became uh, director of the military during the Indian Wars, said, uh, the, the, I'm paraphrasing right now, but I have the exact quote in the painting. Mm -hmm. 
that um, that to eliminate the buffalo would be a way to end the so-called Indian Wars. It would be a way to eliminate the Indians. And and they did that. I mean, they had pretty much almost totally eradicated, you know, all the buffaloes. And so at that time, uh, for Swift Runner, like all the Cree were starving. And he then hired himself out as a guide to the white men at Fort Saskatchewan. And they turned him on to whiskey. Okay. <laughs> so, so here's another gift from the white man. After the, after they supplied after him a lot guns. of good things here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so he started to come home with nothing because he'd blow all of his money on, on the whiskey. And then he started to get into fights with the white man. Okay. And so they kicked him out of Fort Saskatchewan. And he took his family into the, into the woods and... It was a particularly harsh winter, and all, all, all Cree were starving, and his whole family was starving. And his, his family went out hunting for anything, like roots, like anything to eat. But he stopped hunting at, entirely. He just would sit there with his whiskey and drink. And he asked for a spirit guide, you know, because that's what, that is the most important, you know, voice to listen to, mm-hmm. you know, for, I think, all indigenous people, you know, and that's their religion and the spirit guide that came to him was the wendigo which is a cannibal spirit he was left in charge of the youngest member of the family a baby and he killed and ate the baby then he went out and hunted the rest of his family he killed and ate his entire family he went back to fort saskatchewan you know because he'd run out of whiskey and he's looking for more whiskey and you know, most of the Cree looked like they came from Auschwitz, but he was kind of portly. And, <laughs> and so they, they interrogated him. And first he wouldn't say anything. Uh, they asked the officers at the Northwest Mounted Police, forced him to bring them to his camp. And he tried to go in circles and avoid it, but finally he brought them to the camp after they gave him whiskey and he started <sighs> to talk. And in the camp, they found the evidence, you know, oh. that he had, you know, killed and eaten his entire family. And then he was tried uh, by six white men. It's an all-white jury, you know, no jury of his peers. Of course and, not. And they made a, a decision within 20 minutes <laughs> that he was guilty. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, well, I mean, not, not that he... W- was not guilty, but still, that's an important thing to, to note, you know, that, that he was not tried by his peers, and, they, you know, they were kept out of it. Uh, there was a dark humor in him as well, because there was a, a kind of a fat guard <laughs> that he, he would always tease and say, yeah, just between those two ribs right there, you'd make a fine meal. Oh. Just, so he was full-blown cannibal this time then. Yeah, he was cannibal and Once you taste that. <laughs> and he you have was, a thirst for it. He was angry, you know, uh, and he was he was alone too at that time. You know, he was totally alone, but he was still had this kind of, you know, weird dignity, you know, till the end and even the um there's a strange thing that happened that I find fascinating is that the um there was a, a, a Christian missionary, Father Leduc, who um, decided that we, 
we have to uh, make this heathen into a Christian. <laughs> and so, so he, he forced um, Swift Runner uh, to, to become a Christian, you know, a Catholic even. And the, um, the last act that, um, that Father LeDuc made um, Swift Runner do before they executed him was, an, was the act of Holy Communion, which is a symbolic act of cannibalism. The body of Christ. Yeah, the body and blood of Christ. Yeah, and that's the last thing, the last religious Christian act that he did before they executed him. And he, at his execution, um, he stood proudly and he said, you know, I, he admitted to his crimes mm -hmm. and he said, I'm very sorry for what I did. And, you know, and then they hung him. When you pick someone like him to, to draw... How much research do you have to do on him afterwards or during it? How does that well, work? Well, it's, it's during. I mean, I do some research before because that's how I get And it like piques your interest. Yeah. But okay. Then, like in making that painting, you know, I, my wife and I flew to, um, to Alberta and we visited. Um, there's a recreation of Fort Saskatchewan. Um, we also, you know, I found the, the place where the, you know, where the crimes were actually committed and I also um, uh, went to the Glenbow Museum where they have Swift Runner's actual breastplate not on display but I I knew that they had it and so I had a pro you know I wrote to them and they gave me uh, a private viewing of the actual breastplate and I got to hold it in my hands really yeah how was that not in the auditorium well, because it's owned by the Glenbaugh Museum, and they're not willing to, to give it up. Well, since we're three best friends, maybe we'll pull up a little heist. <laughs> yeah. it, I'm not afraid of doing a heist with you guys, if you want. <laughs> the painting, well, by the way, the painting is extraordinary. <coughs> and I don't know if you want to talk about the frame. Because yeah. the other thing that Joe frames his paintings in these amazing ways. So w Now, where is that painting now? That, that painting is in Los Angeles. At a museum or some, because I know people buy your paintings, obviously. Yeah, it's not in a, it's not in a museum, but it, w it is going to appear at the Museum of Death um, in the next few months for like a month, I think. It'll be on exhibition there. But the frame that Harold was talking about, yeah, the, the, the frames often have like fetish objects related to the subject. Um, in this case of, of Swift Runner, the, the frame... Um, is made up of uh, human teeth. Um, Come on. Cartridges from from uh, the various rifles from that period, like the Sp Springfield and <laughs> the Winchester, and and uh, coins with Indian heads, and um, and nickels with the buffalo. All symbolizing that exact time. Yeah, yeah, and also like <sighs> toys, you know, tin toys of, of Indians and uh, Northwest Mounted Police. And also and there's... Whiskey labels um, and an actual um, uh, Cree bow is attached to it and a battle axe and a war club. And this is all, all in the frame itself. Yeah, yeah. I can show you a, a picture. Uh, yeah, I want to see it. Even though... You, the people that are listening to the podcast are not going to be able to see it. Well, we'll tell them to go to JoeColeman.com and they can check yep. it out. Uh, here, I'll show you. That's very similar kind of to you, Harold. He said it was very easy to find someone. Oh, come on. Yeah. That's one of the most fascinating things I've ever seen. You go around, I see the bullets. I see the yeah. teeth. I see the little toys. Oh, my God. Check this out. 
Yeah, no, it's extraordinary. Now I'm still feeling guilty that I only work two and a half hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, then play Red Dead Redemption. But anyway, but, yeah. But you guys seem similar because when you said it's too easy sometimes to do that, I, I don't know. This just gives you a little bit more of the actual anything to And now I'm not an artist at all. That's all one brush? Well, a single hair. One brush. Yeah, I've he saw the, the actual painting. Yeah. Do you feel such a connection with them that you don't want to give them away or sell them? That, no, that no, I feel the I feel the opposite because uh, it's they're like you know they're like my children. And look, when, you know, I gave birth to the to the these creatures, so I want them to go out into the world, you know, and make their way, you know, and have a a life that's not aside from me because they because then they interact with other people and they they change people's lives. I mean, I I know some of my collectors whose children now I know, you know, have grown up with those paintings, you know, and now they're adults, and the paintings affected their lives, too. Hmm. Do you have a, what do you call your design of painting? Because it's, I, I hate to use the word morbid or dark. What, what would you use the word to describe it? I don't, I mean, I don't think it's morbid or, or, or dark, you know, and I, I mean, I do, you know, the painting I'm doing right now is of my dear friend Adam Parfrey, you know, the, the publisher, Adam Parfrey, he did Apocalypse Culture, okay. like some of the most disturbing literature. He was the one that was brave enough to put it out there. And, and he died recently, and I, I've known him since the 1980s. So I was compelled to, to do a painting, you know, about him, to, on, to honor him. So, you know, there's different things that might cause me to... to you know, the thing, if I can... You know, yeah, thing of course. About, you know, Joe chronicles this dimension of... American life that nobody else does. You know, it's not just as morbid, it's just like, you know, Swift Runner and the way Indians were treated and how the, what they were driven to do and the atrocities that were, you know, visited on them and, you know, some of the atrocities that they themselves committed, right? You know, I mean, you know, the popular culture is like dances with wolves. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but that's not an accurate reflection, really, of a lot of Native American, you know, culture. The struggles they went through also. Well, the struggles they went yeah. through, but also, you know, there were these, you know, this warrior culture, mm-hmm. you know, that also engaged in a lot of atrocities. You know, but Joe, uh, you know, has, has recorded in these amazing paintings uh, this whole dimension of American existence you know, that uh, the official, you know, histories completely ignore or whitewash or whatever. Yeah, they skim right over that part of it. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. And, and it's some of the most telling, you know, things about what yeah. happened because it's the, you know, the, you don't really learn anything, you know, so much with, with Geronimo, but you learn a lot with Swift Runner when you dig in, you realize what was going on in, in you know, on both sides, you know, and like even, uh, you know, I learned that, um, you know, the, the, the beloved writer of The Wizard of Oz, L. Frank Baum, was one of the staunch people that hated the indigenous people and, and wrote, ter- you know, these disparaging, like, horrible things that they should all be dead, and, you know, and it's going to be better for everyone once they're exterminated, you know. And it, you know, I was surprised when I came across that, but it was, during, it was through my research to do this painting that I, that I came across. It. Going back to childhood. And he's in the painting. And he is, you know, and uh, the scarecrow and the woodsman are going after the Wicked Witch, who's an Indian on <laughs> riding a broomstick. Yeah. Well, that uh, just, you know, when Joe was talking about Baum, I free associated to Kansas. Mm-hmm. And going back to the question you started to ask me 
you know, one of the Kindle singles I did was Little Slaughterhouse on the mm -hmm. Prairie. And, and you know, the, the title is a de deliberate allusion to uh, the Laura Ingalls Wilder. So Laura Ingalls Wilder, when she was an old woman, uh, published uh, a, a, an article in a magazine saying, you know, when she wrote the Little House on the Prairie books, she, because they were aimed at children, she left out, you know, a lot of the darker realities of life on the prairie that were not suitable for a young audience. Um, among them, the case of the Bender family. You know, there was this family of serial killers, you know, who opened a little roadside tavern. Mm -hmm. You know, and when travelers came by, you know, they would give them a meal and then kill them and steal their money and bury them in their apple orchard. But the point I'm making is, you know, there's this other side to American existence that is absolutely as integral to who and what we are, you know, that tends to get whitewashed over. So, I mean, that I think is, you know, the analogy between Joe's work and my work. So. And, and there's such a, you guys are so inter intertwined with the way you do stuff, even with the characters you choose. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. so different. Growing up, you obviously had a fascination with this stuff. When did these, like, drawings start for you? They started at the very, the very beginning, you know, when, uh, when I, you know, I was raised, I like to say Irish Catholic because... Uh, I think there's a Celtic, you know, like pagan <laughs> kind of twist <laughs> to right. to an Irish Catholic upbringing. <laughs> and uh, uh, so when my mom would take me to church, um, she knew I was going to be bored. So, you know, I'm just a little kid, and she gave me a pad and uh, a pencil and a box of crayons. Okay. You know, and I'm looking around the church, and I'm seeing you know, the Stations of the Cross, you know, and, you know, it's this guy being, you know, tortured, you know, and it was fascinating to, to my child's mind. And then, like, and then I, I see that we're all, you know, s you know, worshiping this guy that's nailed to a cross, you know, and so I did, as a child, I did drawings of the Stations of the Cross that I was looking at. I was copying them and I did every th all the drawing with a pencil and then I only used one of the crayons in my box of crayons and that was the red crayon for, for the, the blood. blood. <laughs> yeah. Was your mom okay with it? You said Irish Catholic? Yeah. Oh, is it? Because like Joe right now would be like, oh, cute little Joey's making pictures. Yeah, no, I got, As I got you get older, when I like, got older, yeah. Hey, this guy might be something wrong with him because now they might be like, let's get this guy checked out. So when did it go from cute to uh, little Joey might have a little bit of a problem? Well, I mean, I, I had emotional <laughs> problems. Okay. The, but my family was a you know, dysfunctional, you know, Irish Catholic family. So there were other things. I mean, I tried to set my school on fire. So it okay. got me in trouble. <laughs> okay. But, uh, He's fine now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But... You know, that was, you know, the wonderful thing is that the, um, you know, the art was my... Would you say outlet or... Yeah, I, yeah, but outlet is not like, you know, a good enough term. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, like when, you know, when people talk about your higher power, you know, in a way the, um, the artwork was like, a high, was like my higher power, like a voice to listen to and to, um, to be attentive and that's why it's best not to try to figure it out. Just let it tell me. Just let it play out. Yeah, yeah. Let it tell me. And and it 
you know, it, it helped me get through, like, you know, so many, you know, um, you know, frustrations and, you know, and pains in my life. If I just, if I just paint it, you know, if I just put all, all of that, you know, uh, the emotional and, and, and turmoil, you know, in, inside me into, you know, this, this work that, it's kind of like what, in my mind, it's what, what the alchemists were trying to do because the alchemists, you know, in the Middle Ages were trying to, you know, transform base metals into gold. And so I'm kind of attempting to transform base emotions in, into, you know, a kind of beauty, you know. And, and so that's, you know, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a, you know, it saved me. You know, and and I'm thankful. You know, very honored. You know, to be given this gift. You know, and uh, you know, and I and I and I share it. You know, with when did with, you know you the had world? the gift? Oh, f from the beginning. I, I'm I, glad you know. said that because I I have athletes on and like when did you know you were different? And a few of them said when I was 10 and I knew it. So when did you know that you were on a different level now that this like is a real fi like five or six years old? Oh, really? I mean, yeah, and I and I. And I came to think that my father was actually my son, <laughs> even though he was, you know, a, a highly decorated soldier who fought in both Iwo Jima and Guadalcanal. <laughs> but I had it in my mind that he's, he's the son. <laughs> but Did you grew up in the city? Uh, no, I, but my, my grandfather um, grew up in Brooklyn and... Interestingly, he was a prize fighter that sometimes fought under the name of Jack Dempsey. But he's, he was a he was a, a bantamweight fighter and not a very good. Okay, okay. <laughs> so he wasn't. So he wasn't Jack famous. Dempsey's. No, okay, not, okay. no, no. But it's just funny that we're at Jack Dempsey's, and he called his um, his first bar that he opened in Connecticut, which is where I was born, uh, Dempsey's as well. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. That's full circle. And yeah. uh, when did you move to the, to New York City? Uh, when I was 18. Family or by yourself? By myself. It was a calling? You had to come to the city? Yeah. It, you know, ever since, you know, uh, childhood, like watching the Honeymooners and the Bowery Boys, I thought, yeah, that. <laughs> I got to be there. I want to live there. But then, like, if you look at the Honeymooners and the Bowery Boys, like, neither one of them are real New York. <laughs> like, they're all, like, these cardboard, like, <laughs> paper mache, like, sets. And Where'd you move when you moved here? Uh, first, I lived in Chelsea. Okay. Uh, there was an old um, movie house called uh, the Elgin uh, that uh, they used to have. They used to show silent movies. Like I used to get, go see Buster Keaton movies with a live piano player, you know. And it was it was great. I mean, uh, you know, I remember going home and walking over the bum that was passed out, <laughs> you know, in front of my And when was this? When did you move here? I know you said when you were 18. How old? What year was this around? Uh, it's uh, 75. How wild, how wild was the city back then? It was then? crazy, you know, and that's when I became a, you know, a taxi driver, you know, and I drove during the Travis Bickle era, you know, and I, and with this new documentary, they allowed me to take out one, another of the old checker cabs that I used to drive back then because they, they found a collector that had some yeah it was really fun to drive around the city in the old checker again but yeah I mean it was it was an amazing time you know the, the city was 
It was a wild place, it right? Was, yeah, it was like the Wild West, you know, and it was dangerous, you know, but I liked that about it, you know, and that's what drew me to it. I mean, I wanted to be in a place that, you know, that was, you know, not safe. And let me ask you, when you were here, did you appreciate how wild and crazy it was? Did you realize how crazy it was when you were here? Or was it just like normal life for you? Well, I mean, I was drawn to it because it was crazy, but it became normal after living here. It just became normal. And where do you live now? I live in Brooklyn. Why'd you leave the city? Uh, you know, the I was living in the East Village, you know, and I was living in a, you know, a, one of the old tenements. Mm-hmm. And at that time, when, when I moved there, you know, the the rents were like I was paying like two hundred dollars a month, <laughs> you know. But it, and that's okay to pay for a tenement two hundred dollars yeah. a month, and you know, and then I would spend you know, like a couple of nights a week driving the taxi, and then I'd spend all the rest of the time painting, you know. And I, you know, the, the East Village changed, you know, like after, like, Operation Pressure Point, and then, uh, you know, the whole East Village got cleaned up, and then the, when, they, when the cops took down uh, Tompkins Square Park. That changed and, everything there. Yeah, and so everything got cleaned up, and all these rich people then, you know, put all this money into that area it just to me it lost its charm you know it was no longer the you know the the east village that you know that i was you know doing my primal work both as a performer and as a painter you know in those days and and so i didn't i've no longer felt the need to live there anymore and they were charging i mean they were st- like they started charging like you know thousands of dollars for these this tenement housing, you know, that was that was made as temporary housing, you know, and I it was shocking, you know, and I just I lost like uh, I lost the love for the East Village that I had had. That's when, sad. When I first moved. That's sad. Like yeah. you're a true New Yorker who loved it, appreciated it, and yet not that you pushed out, but it, it's lost it. It lost its grit and its edge, right? Yeah, yeah, and it, so that's what it was nice, you know, coming back to you know doing Tony's thing too. That was nice too, and like. Tony would, you know, ask me, like, what were the, you know, because it's a food show, too. Mm-hmm. Like, what, what would be a place that, you know, that I would think of that would capture that for me? And it was John's at 12th Street, you know, does ca- still hold that, you know, that atmosphere of, of a bygone era. Like, it's still old school. It hasn't school. changed yeah. at all. Not at all. And I love that about it. When's the last time you've been back there? Besides doing the show with Bourdain, when's the last time you've been? I s- the guys... Um, always want me back and, they <laughs> and they're, one, they're really wonderful and they're so appreciative that they you know they got on the, on mm-hmm. the show it's it's a wonderful place and i like anyone that wants to you know experience you know new york you know uh, back you know in the old days uh, please go to john's at 12th street it's wonderful is it crazy walking around the east village now and just seeing the like just seeing how how nice it is how safe it is at night yeah yeah <laughs> And I, I know there's a lot to be said for that, you know, for mm-hmm. for families, you know, to have a safe place to, you know, raise their family in the in the city. But there's also something to be said for, you know, like a like a major city, like having its like red light district, yeah. you know, and its dark same thing with areas. Uh, Times Square. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just walking through Times Square and thinking back, you know, the days of the Deuce, yeah. you know, which yeah, I mean. Uh, you know, now it's just Disney World. It, it, so, literally, on the yeah. corner, there's characters on the corner. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. No, I feel nostalgic for those 
old days too. You, yeah. you you miss them sometimes. You're like, oh, this is nice that you can walk through the park at one in the morning with no issue. But then sometimes you're like, yeah. I miss it. I you know sometimes you'll go through like old newspapers or old pictures and you'll see like the subway cars graffitied. It sucks, but it's it's New York. It made it look pretty. Now there's like, if there's a scratch on the window. Take yeah. it out of service, clean right. it up. It's, yeah, yeah. It loses its edge a little bit, yeah. doesn't it? Well, it loses its edge in a big way, yeah. Right. And, um, um, and and I don't I don't know. Sometimes, you know, it's uh, you know, there's a big cost, you know, of uh, of progress, you know, so-called progress, you know. Well, yeah. And yeah. well, what were you gonna say, Hal? No, you know, uh, uh, a book that I would teach when I was still w- working, uh, James Dickey's Deliverance. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever saw the movie or I read anyway. The book. You know, it's about four guys going on this canoe trip. You know, and 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 there's this wild river, and the reason they feel this urgency to go is they're going to dam up the river and turn it into a marina, and it's going to be very safe and so on and so forth. But that wildness, you know, you miss that energy. You know, that dark, dangerous energy. You know, it's, again, the difference between, like, going on a log flume ride in Disney World, mm-hmm. you know, and actually going down a, you know, going down a river in Alaska or something like that. You know, Times Square, again, it's much safer and so on and so forth. You know, but it's lost a, a certain kind of very dark vitality, you know, that uh, is very important, I think. That's being pushed out now. No one even talks about Times Square. It's always like, oh, the old days, the deuce. Now it's... Yeah. The nicest place in the world, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, I mean, you know, all those old grindhouse theaters, you know, that you'd go to. Yeah, there used to be the variety photo play. Yeah, um, sort of take your life in your hands. I remember going to see the the movie The Warriors in one of these uh, 42nd Street grindhouses. Yeah, and, you you know, those theaters were amazing, too. They were beautiful, like, and they got torn down. There was, like, there'd be, like, um, like, three or four balconies. You know, that are watching like a black exploitation film, like The Spook Who Sat By The Door, which is an amazing movie, but, you know, but it was, it was only for like, you know, exploitation and and porno, you know, and it was so amazing to to have that exist at that time. All right, we're going to pause now so we get another drink. All right, hold on. Ready to continue? Yeah. We got our drinks. We're ready to go for round two? Yeah. When did your paintings skyrocket up in price? You know, I, I can't say exactly the. I think it was around the, the show that I did at the Tilton. You know, it was after there was a big article in New York Times about the exhibition. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that's that's when. Uh, and what year was that? Uh, I think it's it's either I think it's ninety nine. You could look up on my website. I mean, to get. I'm bad sometimes with uh, remembering the exact dates, but you could just look it up on the website, the Tilton Gallery. And that's when you Ex- kind of, like, I guess, came on mainstream and blew up a little bit? Yeah, yeah, because I think, um, you know, and it was on two floors, you know, of this townhouse in the Upper East Side. Okay. You know, so it was like this, you know, posh, like, amazing <laughs> place. Like, a, before that, I was in, like, these dives, you know, underground dives. And then it, at that exhibition, it brought me up to, like, real mainstream art world I'm glad you said mainstream art world because celebrities have come to you to buy stuff I think I don't know if Johnny Depp's bought one from you yeah, yeah. Johnny, Johnny Depp has my painting of Celine and uh, you know uh, Leo has one of my paintings and Leo I love you said Leo <laughs> there, I also have, I have a new book coming out too because ha- Harold's plugging his books yeah well plug your book obviously 
Yeah, it's a doorway to Joe. Um, it, uh, it's 400 pages, so it's, it encompasses, um, you know, all of my paintings, you know, uh, my comics work, uh, my performance art, uh, my acting in different films. So it's a pretty thorough book, and, uh, and Tom Waits did the intro to that. Which when, is, when's it coming out? Are you going to do a tour for it and stuff? Yeah, I'm going to do a tour. Um, where, you know, I, I, my book agent is negotiating like stuff, so I probably shouldn't say too much, but just look for it. I mean, Amazon had already like put it out, but I, I had to like not work with the person I was working with before. Okay, but it okay. is coming out, <laughs> and so people just stay, um, you know, just be patient because it's. We'll wait for it. Yeah, where, your website will obviously say when it's yeah, coming yeah, out. Yeah, 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 absolutely. When did uh, like when a celebrity calls you up or someone of high stature like? Our buddy Leo, when Leo calls you and stuff, and does he request the painting or says, "Can I come check him out?" How does that work? That whole process. Nobody can request the painting. Okay. Oh, so you don't take matter. requests, like no matter who it is, like, no, "Hey, no, okay." I, no, no. Yeah, I, I. Well, there goes my next question. Yeah, I'm no. not. <laughs> no, because look, if um, I don't care who it is, if somebody asks me to uh, to make a painting, you know, then you know the the thrill is going to be theirs, you know, and so I'm just going to have no passion and just like paint the you know spent you know a year or more of my life painting something I don't want to paint it's not going to be good for the person who's getting it and it's not going to be good for me so the thing is you you just have to be on board with what I'm going to paint you know and if that's you know if that's okay with you then fine and if not <laughs> there's someone else you know that that'll that'll get the painting I always say when Harold comes on I always said I always picture him sitting in his study and that's how it's really dark with the fireplace crackling, me having a pipe, just hanging out. That's how I always picture him. But then I said, he's so pigeonholed. You're obviously pigeonholed. <clears throat> what other things are you into that would surprise people? You know, some, uh, like one of the funny ones may be that, um, that in, the, in the spring on our fire escape, um, we garden and we have uh, – <laughs> We have a whole garden. <laughs> I probably shouldn't say this because it might not be okay. <laughs> but uh, but I, we, we grow tomatoes and like. So you have a green thumb. <laughs> yeah. And no one would picture that. Like Harold like writes the craziest true crime stories ever. And yeah, he's playing PlayStation 4 all day and all night. And you drone all these things about with fish. You have the auditorium. And yet you're outside <laughs> watering like little yeah. tomato plants. Yeah, yeah, sure. And Hey, tell me about this auditorium, because the first time we met face-to-face, Harold, you told me, you go, you know who you would love? This guy, Joe Coleman. He has this auditorium. So tell me what the auditorium is. Well, it's, uh, you know, it's a collection of, you know, of artifacts that can be, f- you know, from, uh, from churches. It could be from, uh, you know, science, like pathology museums. It could be from sideshows. It, it could be from uh, crime museums. Uh, it's a collection that, that really, like my paintings, it kind of tells me, you know, and it speaks to me, and whatever speaks to me then becomes part of, of the auditorium. And I've been doing, you know, I've been making, I mean, the auditorium is almost like a work of art too, you know, and I've been working on it since the 1970s. I mean, you know, and some yeah. of it is in storage. Is it, what it, were you going to say, Harold? No, I was going to say, you know, again, these 19th century dime museums, 
you know, which grew out of these old, what they used to call cabinet of curiosities. You know, what the auditorium is, is this incredible assemblage of these weird and bizarre curiosities of all kinds. And again, the thing is like, you know, stepping into it, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me, living in the kind of virtual world we do, where you can see anything online, mm -hmm. right? You know, is there was a, a basic human experience that human beings had for thousands of years, which is you would literally step into some kind of forbidden space, you know, whether it was a freak show or, you know, even talking about the deuce, going into those old peep shows. You know, there was always some place where you would cross this threshold out of the normal world into this realm of the dark and the taboo and the forbidden and the bizarre and the grotesque and the extraordinary. You know, and that experience has really disappeared from our life. You know, because now, you know, if you want to see a freak, you just, you know, Google three-legged man or something, yeah. like, you know what I mean? You know, but there's something, but, you know, that was like a basic experience where you'd literally cross over into this realm of the dark and the dreamlike and the nightmarish. And, uh, you know, Joe's Auditorium is like, you know, one of the last places on earth, you know, where you can really have that experience. So it's really an amazing, amazing thing. A few years, I remember reading, and I'm glad you mentioned the Albert Fish book early on, because that's one of the first true crime books I've ever read. And after I read it, I'm like, oh, my God, I want to, and I hate to use the word murderabilia. I hate that. Maybe crime, yeah. artif crime artifact to me better. But afterwards, I'm like, wow, I wish I could have something, not because I'm a fan of that person, because I think it's cool. And I'm like, oh, I may be, maybe I'm messed up, and maybe it's the generation I'm living in. And then reading your books, uh, the Bella Gunness book, yeah. people, this is 100 years ago, people were going to the crime scenes oh, yeah. still back then. Oh, well, way before then. You know, there's some, you know, again, they're, they're, they're relics. You know, they're the flip side of saints' relics. You know, but there's a very, again, dark magic that uh, adheres to these objects. Yeah, but people have always collected them. I mean, back in the days, you know, before, you know, there were police, really, even, uh, and, and certainly before there was any sense of having to preserve a crime scene, you know, people would overrun these places where sensational murders happened, you know, and just strip these places bare. Like the Bender family I was just referring to mm -hmm. in the Little House in the Prairie. You know, the pe you know, within days, people had basically torn their cabin apart. You know, everybody was running off with little, you know, splinters of this wood. It's like, you know, the Holy Cross or something. So. That's and wh how did the uh, collection start? Did you know you wanted stuff, or did it start growing? I guess it did start, you know, from just a, a you know, a child's, like, wonder about different things, you know, collecting. You know, like, I remember bringing home, you know, like, some dead animal. <laughs> <laughs> And then it was covered with maggots, and my mom's yelling at me. Well, <laughs> Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, yeah, right. Very Dahmerish. Yeah. <laughs> right. Which, you know, it was it was obviously a stupid thing to do, you know, but but nevertheless, it was like this child, like th like thinking, "Wow, that's that's fascinating. Look at what is this?" You know, and 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 you know, compelled to, you know, to study it more, you know, and I think that's what at first was the thing to, well, I want to study this more, 
you know, so if I take it home, then I can study it more, you know, and find out, you know, more about it. But, but then it's, it also, you know, um, like talismans and, um, and, and voices, for, you know, from, um, you know, the auditorium is full of these wax figures that, you know, you know, murderers rogue wax figures and um, I remember there was a great episode of uh, the old Rod Serling Twilight Zone where uh, Martin Balsam played this caretaker for uh, this wax museum and when the wax museum closed uh, he was so upset because they were going to destroy all the wax figures and he said no you can't do that so he he brought home all these murderers you know <laughs> and his wife is really upset and I, I've had that experience before with uh, with not with Whitney Whitney's one that's totally behind she's my a collection. keeper yeah yeah but I've had other wives that were not so happy with that but uh, but in the, in the episode like Martin Balsam brings home all these you know <laughs> like ne'er-do-wells and and they speak to him and he speaks to them you know and so you know, I kind of like felt like a, a kinship with because they speak, you know, and they tell stories and they they inform my work, you know, because they do add a certain, you know, voice to uh, to what I'm painting, you know, and, and my you know my thoughts about it, because you know to be with them, you know, they they inform they inform me you know even though if it's all in my you know my imagination that's that's fine but it, but their presence does inform and it's also you know how like uh, the Rorschach test you know where different people you know look at an ink blot mm -hmm. you know and they see something different sure when people come to the to the auditorium and they look at different things each one is affected in a different way and it, and it reveals things about them you know, and then I learn about a person who comes to the auditorium and reacts. It's your own little laboratory. You're like <laughs> yeah. doing human experiments. <laughs> yeah. What are the three coolest things on display or you have in the auditorium? Well, one day I'll have you over, but I, but I'll, I'll I'll just mention like a I'll mention a couple just okay as a tease as a tease as a tease. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, Harold was was talking about uh, you know the fact that. You know that that the the desire to own and you know and and get these objects has existed for you know for centuries, <laughs> and so there's this one really amazing calling card that I have, which is uh, William Marwood's calling card with his autograph on it. Do you know who William Marwood is? <laughs> Harold, you know who William Marwood is. You don't know you William Marwood? No, William Marwood. William Marwood. I don't. Who is it? Uh, he was a famous hangman. Okay. <laughs> in, uh, in the 1800s, he, uh, he had discovered that if you, if you weigh the body and you measure the length of rope, that you can call someone to die instantly. Because previous to Marwood, uh, the... A head could come right off during a hanging, or you could just be like swinging and kicking for a really long time, and it would take a long time to die. So Marwood was actually, you know, um, kind of like seeking like a you know a, 
a merciful like death, you know, a, a quicker death, like the guillotine was meant to be as well. But, you know, it, it doesn't even end there because that would be just amazing enough if just to have a calling card from William Marwood that he autographed. Because it's it's his calling card that says executioner and like his address and come on yeah they had cards back then yeah yeah they had cards William Marwood executioner so what year would that have been uh, that's eighteen well. like I can I can give you the exact year because because um, the day that he because the day that he signed that mm-hmm. um, he hung Charlie Peace yeah. And you know Charlie Peace, mm-hmm. of course, who's maybe maybe an inspiration for uh, Sherlock Holmes, Professor Moriarty. Mm-hmm. You know, and and it was that day that's commemorated. Come you know. on, I love it. it. Said execution. I was so happy when I gave you my business card that said uh, <laughs> Westwood One. So execution is one. What else do you have there? Two. I want two other nice, like different things. Well, the Albert Fish letter is also really very dear to our hearts. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's like the Magna Carta. It is. That's the Holy Grail right there. Artifacts, really? Yeah, for, yeah. Su- yeah, for sure. I mean, because for um, you know, for the history of crime in America, I mean that's, you know, that's, it's changed like the whole dynamic, you know, and it was, you know, it was referenced in the Alienist, you know, and and for me, it, it conjures up like so many like um, contradictions you know in this Judeo-Christian society that we are because his last thing is um, she died a virgin I didn't fuck her though I could have and that just like throws it right back in our face you know like the whole thing about like you know like Catholics oh you know you, you can't have sex but it's okay, you know, for horrible violence to happen to the great martyrs. Like if your eyes are gouged out or your tongue is, you know, cut off. Or, and, you know, any kind of, like, violence is holy, but sex is, is damned. It's taboo, you know? no. Yeah, and that is an important contradiction that, that his very existence points out. How did you get a copy of that? Well, you don't have to tell me who gave it to you, but do you get a phone call like I have something for you as a gift? No, no, it was, it was more complicated than that, but I'll, I'll talk about it when I show you the actual letter. And it's funny, when we first, I think our first conversation, you told me, because I mentioned the Albert Fish book, because I know if you're ever going to come on again, so I want to like get every book I've ever read about Harold on, and he goes, uh, and I asked about murderabilia or artifacts, because I don't collect memorabilia. I have two seats from Yankee Stadium in my apartment, and that's it. And he goes, uh, I'm going to tell you something that's really cool. Because I mentioned the Albert Fish book. He goes, I've, uh, I've seen the actual letter. I'm like, there's no way. Where is it? He goes, I can't tell you where it is, who has it, <laughs> but I've seen the actual picture. And I think the third thing, and I might answer for you, is it the hair? Because everyone always talks about well, Man- Manson's hair. Charles Manson's hair, is that? Yeah, yeah. The Manson hair is definitely you know, the, you know, uh, a significant piece. But also the fact that he called me. You know, uh, a caveman in a spaceship. Wait, wait, wait. Manson acknowledged you? Yeah, yeah Manson yeah. blurbed one of his books. Oh, you got to tell me this. Tell me the story. Harold, yeah. oh, there's so much you didn't tell me about him. Well, <laughs> you just told me how cool he was. Yeah. 
By the way, let me just interject before you get to yeah, that. Yeah, of course. Which is the other, another cool thing out of it, is a Christmas card from Ed, signed by Ed Gein, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Really? Anyway, yeah. Also, so. the, I think the stuff um, that I have from, um, from Charlie Bronson is really significant, not too. The, not, uh, not, not, not the actor, the actor. <laughs> Charlie Bronson, but yeah. they, I mean, they, they, they dubbed him like the most violent criminal in the UK, but he's actually like wonderful like cartoonist that uh, like somewhere between uh, James Thurber and Carl Panzram you know it's his like cute drawings that are doing horrible things I love it's cute <laughs> yeah they're really cute but they're really but they're so demented <laughs> so tell me about this Manson yeah the, the Manson hair well you know I mean that's that's important enough but the uh, but what he said about about my work because he had uh a copy of, of one of it was it wasn't even one of my paintings I think it was a uh, my comics work and um, he wrote Joe Coleman has got a mind plus and his art is something else a caveman in the spaceship praise 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 and ho however you spell it <laughs> and then and then he wrote it the, at the end easy Charlie Manson and you have it? Yeah, I have it hanging in the auditorium. And this is, see, I, 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 sometimes I think out of the box are different. No intentions or no desire ever to go visit them? I, well, I tried a couple of times. Okay. I, 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 I want to try to visit um, Bronson, but that even the documentary crew couldn't get me a visitation with Bronson. But I, I mean, I still hold out hope because, I mean, Bronson, he, I mean, he he didn't murder anyone, but he's but he has a problem with authority. <laughs> <laughs> he dislikes them a little bit. <laughs> right. How do you know when a painting is done? Because they're so intricate, they're so detailed, so colorful. How do you know this is finished? When I run out of room, and it's over. Yeah. Did and what happens um, often is when uh, you know, since I haven't sketched it out, like I can really only end when I have no more space, but. Uh, years ago, when that had happened, then I, I got a frame, and then I started painting the frame. So then now the frames have to be painted too. <laughs> and Whitney, my wife, is always going, "What are you going to do next? You're going to start painting the wall around <laughs> the frame?" <laughs> Did you ever get so far in a painting because you don't sketch it out that you fucked it up a little bit? Um, you know, occasionally, you know, I will. I will sand off something I painted that I'm not happy with that day, mm -hmm. but it has to be the day that I worked on it. Like I will occasionally do that, and that means sandpaper because it's on wood. And um, if I if I do that, um, it means I wasted you know eight hours that day. But if if the if I've completed that day and I decide, you know, I'm not gonna take this off and it's the next day I can't I have to leave it no matter what and I'm I don't allow myself to go back once that's smart once it's committed when painting you have to be in the zone and like I Richard tattoo guy I see some tattoo guys listening to stuff are you in the zone completely do you listen to anything are yeah you I listen I listen to music um, I need to know what music you listen to I need to know Please well, be something different like so like Destiny's Child something so <laughs> outlandish and no one's gonna think of well, I, I listen to all kinds of, of music. I mean, because I, 
I mean, I, I love classical music. I, I love, you know, bluegrass. I love Hazel rockabilly. Atkins. I love... Hazel? Well, yeah, I mean, Hazel Atkins, uh, Harold just brought up, which is um, interesting because um, I was... One day I started a painting, and Hazel... I don't know if you know who he is, but yeah. he's an amazing rockabilly musician who would play, you know, drums and guitar and harmonica all at the same time. He'd throw his guitar up in the air and catch it. <laughs> <laughs> and he would sing songs about eating commodity meat on the moon. <laughs> and he was, he was a wonderful, wonderful character and dear friend of mine. But the way that I met him was because I was listening to his music. You know, he... he was recording, you know, the stuff in the 50s, but he continued to record, you know, until the day that he died, um, which was in, uh, I guess, 2005 or something. But uh, I was playing his music, and I just started a painting, and I just w was compelled to paint him because, I don't know, it just caught me, you know, and then I, I painted him, and then... Um, I sent him a copy of the painting. I mean, I couldn't send the painting. It was already bought, but but then Hazel loved the painting, and, you know, then we became friends, and uh, he was, he played at our wedding, and he was, uh, he's a crazy MF, <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I loved about him, you know, and there's nobody like him. I mean, he, he would write He's probably written more songs than anyone that's ever lived because, like, we would, act, like, he would, like, sing a song that was totally new right in front of you. Uh -huh. And then, you know, Whitney said to him, Oh, I love that song. Can you, can you, can you do that at our wedding? I said, Well, if I can remember it. <laughs> <laughs> you, you keep mentioning Whitney. How'd you, how'd you meet your wife? Uh, that was, um, I met Whitney when I was doing a show in uh, an underground gallery from uh, late 70s, early 80s. Uh, it was called Psychedelic Solution. Okay. <laughs> and uh, Whitney already had posters of my work in her bedroom. And um, she rhymed with uh, a mutual friend of ours mm -hmm. whose name is Jonathan Hayes, a, a friend of Harold's as well. And Jonathan Hayes is a medical examiner and food and wine critic for Martha Stewart. Okay. It's a funny combo. And... Um, but Jonathan thought that Whitney and I would really dig each other, and um, he was also with a friend of his who's blind, and he would describe all the details of the painting to his friend who was blind, and it was pretty amazing. But the only thing I could see was Whitney. Like, of the three of them, like, Whitney was, like, you the knew most right away? gorgeous thing I'd ever seen, and she was amazing, yeah. And, uh, and she accepted your behavior your well yeah i mean because she <laughs> she's she, already she, she was a everything. fan yeah yeah and uh she knew more about me than i knew about her <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it took us a little bit of time because we were at that time we were with other people and so it took us a little bit of time where we could then just be together and uh so we've been together for 20 years Congratulations. Yeah. I'll be there for the renewal wedding since we're the three best friends now. A few random questions now. And this is how I always end the podcast, but I want to hear your answer. You and I were hanging out at a bar. No one cares about your paintings, which is impossible. But who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you right back? Within an hour, they would text you back. 
besides <laughs> Harold Schechter, who's my my answer? I told you when Harold told me you're cool, I'm like, I think Harold's cool. So. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was going to say Harold, but <laughs> <laughs> if you're not allowing me to say Whitney or 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 Harold, oh. uh, um, the third coolest person in your I mean, I ha you know, it's ki it's kind of hard because if if I say it's if I mention a name, other people might be hurt. That's okay. You know? We hurt feelings on the show. Uh, Remember, I say you lie to women and children, never to your friends, and we're we're friends here, so. Well, I, just I would interject. say, okay. Because I, I see you're putting Joe on the spot. From my point of view, I mean, Joe has this incredible range of cool friends, you know, like Jonathan Shaw, you were just talking about him. Um, Tom Waits now, you become buddies with, um, you know, they're just like one, you know, every time. I saw Dave Navarro, you wrote to him on Instagram, he's your buddy. You're he's just shaking it. See, he's, he's the one that got me on Instagram. He's the one that's. That I wasn't going to go on Instagram, well, and he say, told me I have to go on Instagram. That was my next yeah. question. I'm going to let you slide on the coolest person question. I'm going to let you slide okay. on that one, Joe. Don't worry. My next thing was social media, because you don't seem like a social media guy, but you're on Instagram. I know, because of him, <laughs> because of Dave. But <laughs> And, I, and I st I'm probably pretty awkward about it. I mean, I, I only post every once in a while, and I don't answer any. No, you any never wrote back, I don't have Instagram, but I, I looked you up. I don't write any back I don't I hardly even look at it but I do post every once in a while but when I feel like I should post and uh, but it's really only because Dave told me you know and I was kind of having fun with it I mean I I barely got into this century I mean I even <laughs> even in the last century I felt out of place I felt you know I dress in uh, like it's always a suit you know a three-piece suit I don't and I feel like I'm from the 1800s you know, and now it's the Joe dr dressing dressing that way because you are dressed in a suit with different pins. It is who you are. Do you ever feel um, pressure to be on? Like this is you. This is Joe Coleman. I have to dress this way, or is this who you are? Is there ever like maybe like Dennis Rodman played basketball, and he said he always felt in an interview later on. He said he always regretted later on that he would go to a game. He just wanted to wear sweatpants and a hoodie. But no one expected Dennis Rodman to wear that, so he always had to go outlandish. Do you ever feel sometimes that you have to put on the suit, always look so good with a nice beard, sometimes a long mustache? Do you always feel that you have to be on? Well, well what, I, what I feel about, like, um, you know, the choices, you know, that I make for, for my appearance, you know, um, date back to, like, a fascination, you know, that I had, like, looking at old, you know, books, you know, on... Um, Outlaws, you know, in the 1800s, mm -hmm. and I, I liked the way that um, that Wild Bill Hickok looked, and I and I thought that was really cool. And then I'm watching westerns like uh, The Wild Bunch, and for a few dollars more, and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And I I kind of really I said, well, I mean, that's the way. <laughs> I mean, I it makes me feel, you know, comfortable. And then. Um, and then I got into like when I when I started putting things on my my vest, um, it would always be that they had some personal significance. Mm -hmm. You know, you know I'm not sure that that um, that Doc Holliday cared as much as I do about the different things on my vest. I mean, each one has a different meaning. Like this is Whitney's hair with our heart sewn together. That's here, and this is. My cat, Oyo's paw. Oh. When, when she was alive, she used to 
like always scratch everything, like the, f- the furniture. The cat, it wouldn't mean anything if I have a kitten now named Pickles. So I want that. That I'm telling but you, I, I have a new kitten, and that's all I want. But she's still she's still scratching. Like we gotta wait till Pickles dies. And then well, the Pickles is only nine months old. Let's hope that never happens. <laughs> yeah, no, well. no, I, I don't want I don't want your cat <laughs> to die. But I'm. <laughs> but uh, I'm just saying that though that that the objects you know that I. Like all, like mm-hmm. my paintings and like the auditorium, like all the objects have a personal significance. But it, you know, but it's based on a, you know, a childhood, you know, connection, you know, to, you know, to the old west, which is part of America, you know, and also, you know, the New York, you know, uh, of that era too. Like, you know, I, you know, uh, was a fan of um, Herbert Asbury's *The Gangs in New York*. You know, way before <laughs> Scorsese did that film, and our friend Leo was in it. Yeah, yeah, and 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 the, and the art direction, you know, is based a lot on that painting that's owned by Jim Jarmish. That, so there was something that charmed me, you know, and um, so you know, I, you know, I my grandfather he always wore a hat too, you know, and a three-piece mm-hmm. suit, you know, and he was the prize fighter, and I thought. The coolest man that I knew, who was even cooler than my own father who fought in Iwo Jima and Guadalcanal, was my grandfather. He was cooler. That's a cool answer. And so I wanted to be like him. 2.15 in the morning, Whitney's away for two days. What does Joe Coleman put on TV? You can have anything on immediately. What do you want to watch at 2.15? Just you, favorite thing to watch. Well, there's a lot. I mean, because I'm so... You know, enamored by old movies. I watch silent movies. I watch film noirs, westerns, obviously, because I, I brought that up. Um, like, just uh, Whitney's away right now, skiing, and um, and Turner Classic Movies had a um, kind of a tribute to um, the fact that the Stan and Ollie movie is out right now. And I love Laurel and Hardy, <laughs> so um, so I spent... I, I stayed up all night watching, like, Turner Classic <laughs> movies, like, showing the music box, Way Out West, like, all these great, you know, wonderful, because I, I think they're, those guys are, you know, they're wonderful, and uh, and what a great accident, you know, that, that brought them together and, and how special it was. I mean, talking about, like, how, you know, my stuff shows a, a part of America, I mean, that's that's an interesting part that, that America, you know, produces these weird things that you know that are so primal you know and that affect all of us i always judge my guests by you know i, I have all my friends I'm like hey here's because i still even though i i work for westwood one now i still think it's fascinating i'm hanging out with people i think it's the coolest thing so i always text people like hey here's who's coming on my show and i texted rich and i'm like hey you might not know him joe coleman boom he knew who he was and then randomly today this morning i text bobby seeger who runs indian larry He's like, hey, when's your next show? I want to come by. I'm like, it's actually tonight. You probably don't know him. I'm like, uh, Joe Coleman. He's like, the artist? He drew one of the coolest pictures. He said, let me change that. The greatest photo ever of uh, Indian Larry, he said you drew. Yeah, yeah. Indian Larry was a really dear friend of mine, too. Uh, you know, and like I told you about, like, when Adam when Adam died uh, last year, I was compelled to paint him. When When Larry died... You know, he uh, he had always wanted um, to work with with me on something. Like he wanted me to maybe 
paint one of his gas tanks or something. <laughs> and, and I was like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> but he just wanted to do something with me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I loved Larry so much. But then he, he fucking dies, you know. And, you know, and he'd already, he, he was sober, you know. He had, he'd conquered so many of his demons, you know. And then, you know, he's standing on his bike, you know, and he falls and... <sighs> You know, then I was compelled. I, ha- I had to do this painting, you know, of him. And, you know, like we talked about Swift Runner, like for Indian Larry's frame, I used uh, motorcycle parts <laughs> um, of bikes that he never completed. And I used them to frame uh, the, the painting of Indian Larry. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I loved him and, uh, and I miss him, you know, and uh, I'm... I'm I'm dear friends with his wife, Bambi. I gave her away at the at their wedding because his well, I shouldn't say this, but her father wasn't there, so I I was there for Bambi and I gave her away for the for the wedding and it was uh you know that that painting though was um you know a really important painting, you know. Where is it now? Um it's it's in a really great collection. Um, I'm not sure if I should because I, I, I I'm not sure if I should because sometimes collectors don't want their okay because okay. that that's another but, but heist a, we have to do. But yeah. it's a major, it's a major. Someone collector. has it and it's yeah. safe right now. Yeah. Okay. Three last questions. One piece of art that's gotten the most press or praise. What's the one thing that people like maybe focus on you the most? Because I know the one that I always whenever I googled you that the Houdini one comes up the most. Well, yeah, I guess the Houdini one did get a lot of play. You know, it, it traveled with um, the exhibition about about Houdini and um, David Blaine, the amazing. Because I, I think David Blaine. I mean, I was going to say magician, you know, but I think both Houdini and David Blaine are more than magicians. They're shamans, wow. you know, because they put their, you know, their ver- their sanity, their life you know, their, their physical well-being at stake for their art, you know, and, and I admire that, you know, and uh, so I think they're in the same, they're in the same realm, and, uh, you know, David and I have talked about this, and I, and I do want to uh, do a painting of David. Um, usually I need... <laughs> I need someone to be dead before I paint them, and I would hate that to happen. <laughs> Joe's but already promised when I die he'll do a bigger painting of me. And then I get that painting. I'm telling you right now. Okay. Right now, a painting of Harold. Well, the, okay. But you, uh, I'm not sure you can afford it, though. Yeah. But oh, Okay, so I'm going to make things a little awkward now, Joe. <laughs> so everyone who comes on my show, so an athlete who come on my show, and they bring me a jersey, and they sign the jersey for me. It's framed. Harold comes on. You can ask my fiance. I have all the books, all, all Harold's books are lined up, all signed, all autographed. Um, wrestlers come on. They sign their figure. I'm looking around now, and I'm not saying it might be on the third floor of Jack Dempsey's. You brought me a painting, right, or something? Or I'm looking around <laughs> for it. <laughs> uh, no, no, Mike. I, but, 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 Mike, I, I will be happy to sign a book for you, and, and I'm offering you... Uh, actually a visit to the auditorium in which I will sign a book just for you and your fiance 
as well. So I, I'm offering that right now. And, but that's, that's all I'm offering. <laughs> well, the painting, we'll talk the painting off air. Yeah. Okay. I, I know you don't collect pieces just in particular, like, hey, I want that piece. Um, is there any piece of, of crime history that you would like for the auditorium? I, I know it's hard to describe because you don't even know what's out there. But is there something that you would love? I hate to say love because then we think that we're thinking on a different level. But there's something that you would always want to have in your auditorium. Well, I mean that that's a big question. But the, the what I'm I'm going to reduce it down to like a, a more simple thing. You know, I you know, I was talking about and, and the reason why I'm bringing it up because I talked about Marwood before. But um, when another dear friend of mine died, who was also a, a great collector of crime artifacts. Um, he had uh, one of uh, William Marwood's nooses, and I wanted that mm -hmm. for my collection. And it was sold, and he told me it was it would be mine, but it was now someone else has it, and I really oh. wanted that. So, yeah, maybe I shouldn't be sick. That's like sounds like sour grapes. I'm sorry, <laughs> but uh, but that I don't know. Just when, when you talked about it, and since I mm -hmm. was talking about Marwood, but yeah, I, one of his nooses. To go with that, the calling card would be really nice. That's a nice one-two package. Yeah. yeah. Now you know to get them for Christmas. Yeah. Well, that well, I, well, for Christmas I was getting Harold the poison bottle, and it's the truth. You can ask Julia. <laughs> I said, uh, so Julia and I just got engaged, and she's like, hey, thank you, thank Harold you. Best wishes. Well, thank you. She's a very lucky girl, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and it's funny because she's like, hey, I don't, I don't want to have a normal wedding. I want to have like a beer garden. I just want to have a beer garden, and everyone just shows up and hangs out. So I'm like, all right. And she's like, hey, your guest list is going to be pretty cool because I think I'm the only podcaster, radio guy that stays in touch with my guests afterwards, even if they don't want to. So I have all these people on. Like, the truth, Harold's my favorite author ever. And I, I'm in touch with him. I text him. It's still like, it's weird when he texts me. And she's like, who's invited? I'm like, oh, they're all invited to the wedding. <laughs> like, they're all invited. So it still, like, blows my mind. Yeah. Well, in terms of uh, non-conventional weddings, mm -hmm. let me just say that I was a pallbearer at Joe's wedding. Okay, describe <laughs> it, describe it, tell me. Well, Joe came down the aisle <laughs> in a coffin. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, yeah, and I was one of the pallbearers. Well, it was, and the coffin was in a hearse that was backed into yeah. the American Visionary Art Museum in Baltimore. And the, uh, and the ceremony was officiated by a ventriloquist dummy. Yeah, it was, <laughs> come on, come on. Yeah, and it was, yeah. no, this is, this is all real. And yeah. uh, the ventriloquist dummy's name was Dutch. <laughs> and we were married yeah. by Dutch, not by the ventriloquist, even though yeah. the ventriloquist <laughs> was ordained. <laughs> but yeah. but the, yeah. when I first met the, uh, the ventriloquist, um, it was in you know, this area. It was uh, Times Square when it was, uh, when it was dangerous. And I parked my cab, and, um, I, you know, I went into this bar, and there was a, a guy that was passed out at the bar, and a <laughs> ventriloquist dummy that was sitting at the bar. And, and the ventriloquist, you know, is making the dummy, like, curse every Like, you bunch <laughs> of sad, right? <laughs> And, and they're wanting to kick him out of the bar. They all want to kill him. <laughs> and so I'm saying, just leave the guy alone, man. Just, just hey, peace, you know, love. Hey, come on. It's <laughs> the guy's a little drunk, you know. So I helped him out. 
you know, of the bar, him and, and Dutch. <laughs> Dutch is yelling at me the whole time. Get you. <laughs> but, but I got them home. They lived right, you know, around the corner here back then. And, you know, and I, I came to realize that um, he wasn't a professional ventriloquist. It was like his, like, alter ego <laughs> was the dummy, which made it even cooler in my mind. And, um, you know, then, you know, he, he did get sober, you know, he did 12-step program and mm -hmm. he, he gets sober. And then uh, when Whitney and I were talking about our wedding, you know, we talked about the fact that also Whitney had known him too, because Whitney worked as a bartender at that same period and she 86'd him <laughs> out of her <laughs> bar. So, so it, it did connect, you know, for both of us. And so there was something wonderful about having this ventriloquist dummy like Marius. And so one thing that I did to, because he was nervous because he's sober now about doing the ceremony. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I wanted to make him feel more comfortable is that I, I, had, um, I had Dutch measured for a special shark skin suit <laughs> just for the dummy so he could be badass. <laughs> oh, oh, should I not say that? On no, we've we been cursing. Oh, okay. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, then Dutch was, like, decked out with this really badass suit. And Dutch was amazing at the wedding. He okay. did a great job. I got all these pictures. I was sitting next to Dutch. He <laughs> kept putting his hands on my leg. <laughs> and I kept, like, you know, brushing it off. Awkwardly moving your leg. Like, yeah. All right, Dutch. Yeah. We just met tonight. Yeah. <laughs> Where'd you honeymoon then? We went to um, uh, Bangkok, uh, Koh Samui, and... Oh, uh, Chiang Mai. So we went into the in Thailand. We went to the mountains, mm -hmm. uh, the, the the sea, and the city. That, the tri I did the same thing. Bangkok, yeah. Chiang Mai. It's the triangle. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I think that's the best way to see Thailand. Yeah, because you get cri well, we, the way I did it. I was it was partying in the city in Bangkok, and then up in the mountains, and then down to the beach. I, I did that yeah. tri same exact triangle. Yeah. Not for the honeymoon though. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to say this was a pleasure would be an understatement. This was unbelievable, and Harold. To hang out with you, I can't just tell you now just to bring people so I get to hang out with you. But, Take Joe, care. this blew my mind. Thank you for not going Hollywood after you were on Bourdain. But Julie is here now. Wasn't I mad when we watched him on Bourdain? Yeah. I'm like, shit. Joe's on. That's, I was so mad at you. I'm like, that's. Yeah, I'm like, too late. I, I effed up because we, uh, we were going to go. I told you, the cemetery thing. We went away. I forgot where we went on vacation. And I'm like, crap, I missed out. I'm like, no big deal. And I see you on Bourdain. I'm like, he's going to go Hollywood. <laughs> so thank you for not going Hollywood on me. I mean, that's silly. I mean, I – God, if, if I was going to go Hollywood, I, I would have done it, you know, many I, years ago. I mean, the – You are Hollywood, though. I didn't know that. You are Hollywood. You're, you're – I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just – look, I'm just a guy, you know, and I – there's certain things I care about, you know, and the things I care about, you know, sometimes are – you know, disturbing to people, but I think those are the things we, we should be talking. We should be talking about disturbing subjects. Like, you know, I'm afraid that the world is getting so puritanical that you know we're, we're not talking. You know, we should be able to talk about any subject mm -hmm. at all. You know, because we're all we're all just you know these fragile creatures, and we have a lot more in common that you would than you would ever. And even I, realize. I always like going back to the books. Uh, for the past 150 years, 200 years, people care about crime scenes. And when you're around a big group, no one wants to talk about it. Hmm. But yet then 
people one on one be like, "Did you see that picture?" Everyone's yeah. still showing. The, everyone wants to see, but they feel it's taboo not to talk about it or not. If you told someone you want to see the Albert Fish um, letter, if there was forty people there, oh my God, no! If it was one on one, be like, "I need to see that." Like, and that's the yeah. truth. But people, for some reason, feel like it's taboo and they don't want to talk about it. But well, I guess they don't. It, but I guess it's okay. I mean, I guess it's okay to keep. I, I don't know. There's something also about it being precious. I'm a libertine. I'm not a Republican or mm-hmm. a Democrat, but I believe in free speech, you know, and I think that's the most important thing that we should be able to talk about any subject. On, on everything, even yeah. if you don't agree with it, and that's my – we're not going to go political, but yeah. my one thing is free speech for everyone. You can't yeah. say, hey, you can be pro this, but just let everyone talk, and whoever, that's it. I, I'm the most pro – uh, free speech person ever just anyone that's the best thing about the country free yeah. speech that's it I love it yeah well people um, my observation you know is that people are afraid the way I f- phrase it to myself people are afraid of their own dreams you know they don't want to admit what's really inside them um, so you know it becomes some guilty pleasure you know, the thing about Joe's art, again, is he's there's a kind of fearless exploration of this dark side, um, you know, which, which is at least as vital and important and revealing about who and what we are. Because, you know, really, who and what we are, you know, is like behind this polite social mask we wear. Um, and, you know, Joe's been exploring that in terms of the entire culture. And he's also this amazing historian of this forgotten realm of America. Um, so, anyway, yeah, I think, as Joe knows, I, I think he's one of the most important artists of our time. Thank you, Harold. Well, cheers now. One, to, our, to the podcast finishing up. Two, to our friendship. Yep. The three friendship. Joe, if you play your cards right. You might be invited to the wedding. Just letting you know. Yeah. And if you want, we'll, we'll ask Dutch maybe if he's available. Maybe <laughs> Dutch can uh, oversee the wedding. But yep. Harold, to come on again, thank you. You know you're my Anytime. favorite author. I'm. I love hanging out with you. Anytime, man. Thank you. I hope so because now that you're retired, now there's no more excuses. Well, there is excuse. I, I got Red Dead Redemption to get through. And <laughs> you're a grandfather. Let's not forget the grandfather. Oh, yeah, yeah, the grandfather. Yeah. <laughs> Joe, pleasure, my friend. And it's really great to meet you, Mike. Thank and you, sir. Also. I'm serious about the invitation. You and your fiance. Oh, we'll I be would, there. You know, uh, I'd love to have you guys. Oh, it's it's 100. percent It's okay. actually one. I'm not even gonna be lazy because Julie knows when I get obsessed about stuff. Here we go. Tell me. Here we go. Auditorium, and I make my little notes. Albert Fisher letter. Charles, you know, just to. I didn't really look yeah. at my notes, but just in case. And then it says, "I have never wanted to visit somewhere more in my entire life. How can I get an invite?" <laughs> because Joe on the website on JoeColeman.com, uh, FAQ, and it's like, uh, "What is the auditorium?" And you, he describes it. And the next question, "Can I visit?" And it just says, "No." <laughs> and the next question, like, "Where can I see your next exhibit?" <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, that's the way it should be, though. <laughs> My friend, I can't thank you guys enough. I had a blast. Okay. We did too, man. Yeah.